in the name of Jesus. Purpose, mission, strengths, weaknesses, SWOT analysis if you're one of those crazy book-reading, planning people. Big, hairy, audacious goals. You have them, right? Or you've done them. Your boss requires them, usually before a performance evaluation or review. Your teachers, professors, and guidance counselors, perhaps even your financial planners and CPAs, remind you and give you tools for such planning. And so I ask you this day, do you know what's coming next? Do you have plans in place for what comes next? Do you know where you are going? For a high school student, this can be one of the most stressful questions asked. For a new mother, a new employee, a new graduate, <laughs> a new pastor, <laughs> you get the idea. John the Baptist, however, he knew. <clears throat> he knew, and there was no <clears throat> uncertainty on his part. Good for him, you might say. It's always wonderful, after all, to be surrounded by successful people who have their act together, right? But part of you is like, ah, whatever. I have to worry about me. And so, today, in your face, John the Baptist did not have any uncertainty about what he was supposed to do with his life. Pastor Apostle Luke tells us, that the Holy Spirit was already using him to point to the coming Messiah when John was in his mama's belly. And that shouldn't surprise you. After all, God called Jonah out of the belly of a big fish to preach repentance to Nineveh. Our God can do great and mighty things. Perhaps he can also help guide our way. Pastor Apostle Matthew goes on to tell us about Grown man got his life in order and knew what he was supposed to do while wearing a rapper's camel coat and eating vegan with locusts and wild honey. Which begs the question, can you uh, eat locusts and be vegan? Anyway, Matthew tells us, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. These were now the days of repentance. In those days, the coming days that Jonah was sent to warn Nineveh about, the end-time language of all the Old Testament prophets. And now, here he was. John rolls up to the scene full of vim and vigor, deadly certain about what he is supposed to do. All part of God's end-time action sequence, probably in high-def 4K HDR. John had no doubt about it. Not a waiver. He looked the part, and he acted the part, and he proclaimed a direct and clear message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance. Try adding that into your performance evaluation preparation, nor will you find it in your studies for the ACT, the SAT, the MCAT, the LSAT, or whatever. You get the idea? John declared that God's end-time reign was imminent. And in preparation, people needed to repent. They needed to confess their sin and turn away from it. 
And so John administered a baptism. And by submitting to this baptism, people demonstrated that they were indeed repentant and that they were looking for God to act. John knew that he had one purpose. He was preparing the way for the coming one, the one who was greater than John. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to even carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn. But the chaff, oh, the chaff, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. No one was left out of this message. After all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Preacher John, can you imagine if he had a Twitter account back then? He would have been vilified by social media. He declared that all ALL needed to repent because this coming one was going to be the instrument of God's end-time hellacious judgment. And the coming one? Oh, you just wait. The coming one was going to destroy all who opposed God. And he was going to provide rescue to God's faithful people. The coming one was going to bring God's kingdom, his reign, as he destroyed all evil and put all things right. Take that, John might have said, if you believe Jesus should be your boyfriend. Remember Jesus, after all, who later said, I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. You see, the way to peace begins with repentance. But hang on. The plot thickens and our gospel continues. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus, the coming one, shows up. And there he was, standing right before the last and greatest prophet, and seemingly crazy but strangely hip, John the Baptist. But what's missing from the story? Where's the fire and brimstone? Where's the big sword? Where's the battle with evil? The destruction of evil? <laughs> Instead, of unloading the fire of God's judgment upon unrepentant sinners, Jesus quietly comes to John and politely asks to receive his baptism. And John's plans, everything that he thought was supposed to happen, everything he had designed for the future to do, well, his plans are just crushed. Confusion sets in, doubt creeps in. Have you been there before? Ever had your glorious plans changed and your world rocked? And so John shows us that he is a sinner, just like us. He questions God and his plans. He questions Jesus. I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, and you come to me? 
Can you hear the self-righteous tone of indignation dripping from John's voice? After all, the baptisms that he had been performing were for repentance. And now here was the Most High God in the flesh, for whom John had leapt for joy in his mama's belly. What was he doing here? What's he doing here to receive the same baptism that everyone else was receiving as they confessed their sins? Good question. And since God always answers prayer, yes, no, or wait, Jesus replies to John, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. For us to fulfill. John's role, vocation you might say, is to baptize. Jesus' role was to be baptized, to receive a baptism of repentance. And no doubt baffled and confused, perhaps as you are, John consented. He baptized Jesus. And I know you're probably on the edge of the seat with the story, but listen to what happens next. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice said from heaven, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Like a baby leaping in mom's belly at the name of Jesus? Like a virgin birth? What? Like a star seen only by Babylonian wise men that worked better than Google Maps, Jesus' baptism prompted a revelation. Another miracle by God. The heavens themselves were opened. And the Spirit, whom you're not supposed to see, by the way, descended upon Jesus. And then God spoke. The Father spoke words echoed, well, from another Old Testament preacher of repentance, from Isaiah. You can read about it in chapter 42. The Father declared Jesus to be His Son, with whom He was well pleased. You see, the real problem that John was having in the midst of his goals and plans, probably the same problem you and I have, is that God just won't behave. We think we know better than Him. After all, He should be making my life good. He should be making me happy. He should be giving me success. Lord knows I've worked for it and I deserve it. After all, he's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> and if you were with us last week, yeah, you know what you are. We are theologians of glory. Because the fact of the matter is that God allows hardships and difficulties in our life, sometimes even brings them to us. A family member or friend diagnosed with Parkinson's or cancer. Your marriage disintegrates. You lose your job. Huh, you work for the government and you haven't seen a paycheck for weeks. Jobs become just work and hard labor. And retirement seems so far off, if we're even so lucky. Theologians of glory, sinners, Doubt God. 
grumble against God, get angry with God, question God, but God is God. And He is not playing by our rules. He does things in ways that we don't expect, ways that we would never imagine. His loving concern for us and our welfare rises above our best laid plans and self-centered way that we usually look at things. And so if you want proof, if you want assurance that God still cares and is in charge, even though things in your life right now make no sense to you, then, then look. Would you? Look to who is in the water. Jesus receives a baptism for those who need to repent, you and me, even though he has done nothing wrong. He is baptized, and the Father speaks words that describe the servant in Isaiah chapter 42. He identifies Jesus, who is the Christ, as the one who is also the servant, the servant of the Lord who suffers in our place. He is the one of whom the prophet wrote, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus goes into the waters of baptism, and it is his entrance into a way that leads directly to the cross. Jesus is baptized because, as he himself said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is not something that John the Baptist expects. This is not how John the Baptist believes things are going to work. And frankly, we get it. The way of suffering, service, and death is not how we would do things. But God does it this way in order to forgive you for all the times you doubt, ignore, or get angry at Him. And through repentance, He leads us from our own self-serving pursuit of glory into now being theologians of the cross. Jesus' baptism leads to painful and agonizing death upon the cross and stone-cold burial in the tomb. Three days, mind you, in the belly of the earth. But it also leads out of the tomb. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has defeated both sin and death. There's your destruction. There's the defeat of all evil. There's your 4K HDR in times blah, blah, blah. You see, in his resurrection, Jesus the Messiah provides now a living hope that sustains us in faith as we encounter all the things in life that we don't understand. And this hope in the midst of your plans, well, you're connected to it. You're clothed with it. In the water of your baptism, you share in Jesus' saving death. Pastor Apostle Paul told the secular-minded, worried about the government and theologian of glory Romans this, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead 
by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. These are the same words, by the way, that we speak as we cover the casket of the dead bodies of our loved ones with a funeral pall. The same words that I heard and spoke as my grandmother's body was covered with the pall and as she was laid to rest this last week. You see, your baptism, your life, your plans, your everything has to do with this has to do with Him. That's the life and faith of a Christian. Pastor Apostle Paul goes on to say, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Purpose, mission, strengths, weaknesses, big, hairy, audacious goals. There you have it. For a Christian... It all comes down to this. Because Jesus rose from his death, your baptism now provides the guarantee that you will too. And Jesus says to you, you are free. You are free. Do you like freedom? Free to pursue your dreams and ambitions. Free to have and make big, hairy, audacious goals. You you see, in the face of all the questions and and maybe disappointments of what we have done or will do or how our plans get changed, in the midst of all the hardships, our baptism provides us a fixed point of assurance about God and you. It is your connection with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That event in which it looked like God was nowhere to be found, And yet it showed itself to be the mighty and saving action of God for you. John was confused like you and I are, but Jesus comes to open our eyes. You see, your baptism is always there. Always affirming for you, yes, God loves me. Yes, God cares for me. There's yet hope. Yes, God knows what He is doing, even though it makes no sense to me right now, even though the waters roar and foam and the mountains tumble into the heart of the sea. God has not promised, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, He's not promised that we're always going to understand what He's doing in our lives, with our plans and our given vocations. Quite the opposite. He's told us flat out that His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. But in the baptism, death, and resurrection of Jesus, He does the one big thing that makes no sense. Jesus enters into the water in order to die for you. And in the water of your baptism, you share in Jesus' saving death and resurrection. You are forgiven. And so He has made you His people, His folks, His saints. And because He's done this, We can trust and believe in Him no matter what happens. We can live and move and have our being. We can make plans. We can deal with changes to our plans. We can just plain figure things out. Sometimes we've got to get up and light the candles because our best laid plans don't work out. But regardless, you are free. Free to live a life with purpose, freedom, and great joy. Because you, you know what comes next, don't you? Resurrection.
awaits. Stay thirsty, my friends, in the name of Jesus. The peace of God which passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.